From WHQR Public Media, this is The Newsroom. Welcome. I'm Ben Schockman. Thanks for joining us. On today's show, we're breaking down what happened at this week's Joint Media Town Hall. WHQR joined Port City Daily and WECT for the live event. We asked questions from our collective newsroom and from you, the public, to all 10 primary candidates for the new Hanover County Board of Education. And if you missed the event, we'll have a link to the live stream on our show page. But suffice to say, there was a lot going on. Thankfully, my colleague Rachel Keith, who helped moderate the town hall, is here to help me unpack it all. Rachel, thanks for being here. Thanks, Ben. All right, let's get into the candidates. We're going to work our way through all 10 candidates in the primary election for the New Hanover County Board of Education. Let's start out with Republican candidate Josie Barnhart. Yeah, so Josie is a mom of two students in the district. She's also a former teacher. She said she became heavily involved in school board politics when the schools were closing for the pandemic. And she said, quote, she stood up when it came to reopening school. And I pestered every single one of these board members day after day after day after day after day. And when they didn't listen, I went to the county commissioners day after day after day after day. And when they didn't listen, I went to the state level call after call after call after call. It's very uncomfortable for me. But she went on to say during the panel evening that this was a really important issue to her. And so she developed her sense of advocacy through that uh, time during the pandemic. And so she also responded to the recent articles from the Star News, which gained a lot of media attention, a lot of community attention last week. So in it, the Star News was looking at basically the segregation in the school system that the neighborhood schools policy because our neighborhoods are segregated by race and class so are our schools so they were showing data that that presented that and then dr charles faust who was the superintendent was quoted in that article saying that we have to the teachers have to have higher expectations for students that's when they're going to do well and he also called out the media and saying that we were being negative uh, as a community about the school system. But here's Josie responding to some of those comments that Dr. Faust made. Hearing the term bless your heart curriculum um, was a poor choice of words because as a leader, we don't need to insult the people who are working with our kids day in and day out. And I know how hard it is because I've worked at schools who were under review by the state. I worked with kids who are going to come into my classroom and flip a table at me before they can sit down for a lesson. You know, Josie's speaking about a noticeable increase in student poor behavior that's been, you know, a result of the pandemic. We've talked about this on the newsroom before. And, you know, one of the ways of addressing this has been, you know, talking about bringing the floor of grades up to 50 percent. So basically, if you got no answers right on a quiz, you would get a 50 percent. And there's a lot of mixed feelings about that. And, you know, Faust's comment really struck a nerve with some people, not just because some people really think that we need to do whatever we can to support students. Also, just the tone that he used seemed to really rankle people. So I think that's part of what Josie was talking about. But let's move on to uh, candidate uh, Pete Wildeboer. Republican candidate Pete Wildeboer was uh, appointed two years ago to fill the spot that Bill Reifenbark left open when he moved over to the county commissioners. He ran two years ago. And uh, so here's Pete in his uh, opening statement. I mean, he's been in education a long time, since 1985. And uh, this is sort of how he opened 
his part of the event. Well, improving education for all our students in every classroom, in each school, in every day. You know, I, I don't feel we, we teach a bless your heart curriculum. I think we do our best each and every day for our students, but we need to, con- to continue to improve. So you have another candidate, he's the incumbent, he's on the board right now, saying that he was disappointed also with that characterization of teachers having lower expectations for students in poverty, students of color. And Pete also did say that the district needs to get rid of the 50% minimum policy. Uh, You mentioned that earlier, so he is not in favor of that. And he also says that he spoke to Freeman educators right after the Star News article and wanted to see how the staff was doing there. I, I try to listen to people. I, I go to schools. Um, a lot of times I get in trouble. I was told by a board member that, uh, oh, they don't like you to be there. But I, every school I go to, they're, they're so happy I'm there. I, I love that. that I'll, be, I'll be honest. That's a favorite part of my job is going to schools, seeing the students, seeing what's going on in the schools, hearing from the teachers, hearing from the principals. So Pete Wildeboer was a, is a former educator, so he really likes to get in and talk to the people in the schools. And he, in that bite there, he didn't say who this board member uh, is, but he said that he, again, is committed to visiting the schools and hearing from staff. And this kind of hints at the contention between the members who want to be more directly involved in the district and those board members who want to leave district staff to do most of the outreach. Yeah, I think we've also heard that there is kind of a bottleneck around central administration, which sometimes just means Superintendent Charles Faust, and that complaints and concerns that are coming up through the teaching staff to the principal staff are getting to central administration, but not making it to the Board of Education itself. There's kind of some gatekeeping or allegations of gatekeeping happening there. So I think, you know, few people would argue it's a bad thing for the board members to get some boots on ground experience. Right. And our next candidate that we're going to be speaking about is a Republican candidate, Melissa Mason. She has two children in the district, and she also says she's been an educator for 17 years. And this was her part of her opening statement. When I am elected to the board, my priorities will be to add more security personnel to our schools. I will listen to you, the parents, and I will fight to eliminate all traces of EDI, CRT, and SEL. So if you've been following Board of Educations across the country, you know that these three topics, uh, equity, diversity, and inclusivity, which is EDI, uh, critical race theory, which is CRT, and social emotional learning, which is SEL, have all been hot button issues. And I just want to take a quick moment to talk about these three things separately. So EDI is a thing. The school is actively doing that. They hired a consultant, Sophic Solutions, and we'll have links to all that reporting on our page. And, and the this, board does have a committee. They have an EDI committee. Yes, exactly. So, you know, the issues there are, again, as the name implies, equity, diversity, and inclusivity. This deals with structural racism and issues like that that might impact the actual learning environment of the kids. So that's a real thing. Whether or not you like it is a matter of you know, personal preference, and it will definitely factor into the election. That's right. But that is a real thing. So CRT is critical race theory. This is sort of an evolution of uh, legal theory that involves philosophical concepts, Marxism. It's taught in high-level graduate schools, uh, law schools, and is not categorically, is not being taught in New Hanover County schools. 
and but it basically involves looking at it started by looking at laws that had on paper no racial component but had clearly racially inequitable uh, impact. For example, the 1986 federal drug laws. So, you know, so you've got one sentencing guidelines for powder cocaine and one for crack cocaine. And this means that wealthy white people who are using powder cocaine get a slap on the wrist. And minority and low income people who are using crack cocaine, the same amount of active drug, are getting huge prison sentences. So that's a classic CRT case. Yeah, because it's about the system being unfair. Yeah. And it's grown into, in, in, some, in some cases, a fear mongering term that, you know, educators will be teaching students uh, who are white that they're responsible for all of the ills of history, to feel bad about themselves. And again, you can say what you want about the actual philosophical works of CRT. That's a different newsroom. Um, And there's actually a great coastline on that issue, which we'll have a link to. But as far as New Hanover County Schools, there is no CRT being taught. That's right. The last one is social emotional learning. That's Mm -hmm. SEL. This has a lot to do with teaching students coping mechanisms, how to deal with their own emotional state, how to regulate that, how to know when you're too frustrated to keep working on a project, how to know why you're upset. And honestly, we've talked about this in the newsroom. I struggle to see the complaint about this one. I understand how something, uh, you know, like CRT, which has avowed Marxist roots, could offend people who don't like Marxism. But SEL, I'm in the dark about this one. I don't understand what the complaint about is. We encourage people to write in. Let us know what your concerns are, but I I can't figure this one out. Yeah, and I think across the board, most of the candidates want to decrease suspension numbers in the district. And this is one way that you can help students cope with behavior and, like you said, their own emotions. And Dr. Faust, uh, during a meeting, said that social-emotional learning is state-mandated curriculum as well. All right, So, but moving on, there was another issue that Melissa Mason brought up. Um, that we wanted to talk about. And that was when our colleague over at WECT, Michael Pratz, asked Melissa uh, about comments she had made about the district's uh, gender support plan. She had called this uh, grooming and criminal behavior. So Michael asked her, you know, could she identify uh, how it was criminal or why she thought this was grooming? Having this conversation with a child and saying, we don't have to tell your parents. That sounds so very much like every grooming story we have ever heard in the history of grooming. If it isn't, please come explain to me how it isn't. But it absolutely is. Now, we'll have more to say about that in a minute, but actually candidate Nelson Bollier brought this up. Um, So he's a current member. He's a Democratic candidate. Yeah, I was asking him a question about the budget work session last week, but he used some of his time to respond to Melissa's comments. So when somebody uses the term grooming without citing evidence, without explaining further what that means, to play a little footsie with some QAnon supporters, I have a problem. And i got to tell you something. And I'm going to tell you something. And I'm going to tell you something. Because when you say something like that, you invite violence onto my family. You invite violence because people will react strongly and with anger if, we, if you tell them we're hurting children. We're not doing that. So obviously you can hear in the background that the crowd was very passionate about this on, on both sides. Yes. So I want to say two things. One, in terms of inciting violence, this is something we've heard from a lot of local candidates, uh, not just Democrats, not just Republicans, but you know all across the board, that the level of vitriol from the public has escalated to the point where it's just not worth it, even for people who like really want to pursue public service or people who've been in office for a long time and just really like it. And look, we know when you're a public figure, you have to have thicker skin. Sure. You have to be able to take some slings and arrows. 
But over the last years, we've seen calls to you know, go camp out in front of people's houses. We saw this with the Health and Human Services Board when it came to the masking decision. We've seen it with the school board. We've seen it with county commissioners when it came to uh, emergency procedures around COVID. And uh, this is actually, we heard from former board chair Stephanie Adams, who took to Facebook to say, look, this kind of behavior that I'm dealing with, this is why I'm not running for re-election. So that's the inviting violence part of it. Uh, in terms of what Melissa is saying about grooming, um, we did not get a chance to allow her to respond to that. We really wanted to. So we reached after her after the event and said, hey, you know, do you have anything you would say in response to Nelson? So she wrote to us and she called Nelson's comments, quote, fake outrage and a, quote, cynical deflection. Now, she didn't address Nelson's allegations there that you may have heard that she was signaling or playing footsies with QAnon conspiracy types. But she definitely doubled down on her assertions about the district's gender support policy, which she wrote, quote, performs the same function as grooming, which is manipulation of behaviors that abusers use to gain access to a victim. That's developing trust, keeping secrets, desensitizing discussions on sexual topics, and an attempt to make that behavior seem natural. Okay. So we spoke to the district about this because we know that this is an intense and touchy issue. Yes. And we want to say a few things. First, we'll have some links to the district's actual Title IX policy on gender support on, on the page. But a few basic takeaways. First, the district works on a case-by-case basis. So it's hard to say what they do in general. Mm -hmm. um, so in a case where the parents are supportive of a student who wants to change their pronouns, this is not really an issue. Or at least it's, it's not the issue that she's describing. And look, there's going to be times when parents don't support a student's sense of gender identity. And in those cases, the district is in a tough spot. So they have to balance student privacy, student rights, and caregiver rights all at the same time. That's just really tough balance to maintain. And so the district considers how old is the student? How mature are they? How bad is the situation at home? You know, there's a lot of factors, but there's two bottom lines. The first, and the district was good, they put it in really clear terms for us. They said, quote, we are not in the business of outing students. It's not their job from their point of view. But at the same time, the district also said it's not their intention to keep secrets long term. In fact, their goal is the opposite. According to the district, they said what they really want is to get the student to the place where they can comfortably and safely have a conversation with their parents or their caregivers about their gender identity. I get how a parent could be concerned about any situation where there's something going on at school that they don't know about. And we've definitely heard from people who considered a culture of secrecy and stonewalling parents part of the reason that sexual abusers like Michael Earl Kelly were able to get away with their crimes for so long. But if the district's goal in balancing student privacy and parents' and caregivers' rights is to ultimately have an open conversation, then that just doesn't look like grooming the way we know what the word grooming means. Yeah, we do not see the district engaging in grooming behavior from what she's saying, obviously. Um, but we do expect to hear from Jarrell Lewis, who's the coordinator for the district's Title IX policies. And he is going to present on this May 3rd because there has been so much misinformation in the community. So they really want to cl clear this up and just give a presentation about what's going on with this gender support plan. Yeah. Um, so back to Nelson's comments, he did say in his opening statement that even though this was a hot topic tonight, that he wanted to move away from what he called culture war issues and basically focus on strategies to help students. Do we want New Hanover County Schools to go down the road in the never-ending battle of D's and R's and make our school system another battle in the culture wars? Do we want to do that? 
I don't want to fight with anybody up here. I want to fight with everyone up here to make sure that we're fighting for students and for the things that matter. And he went on to finish his opening statement with uh, say by saying, I am a consensus builder. So he, even though he did try to correct Melissa Mason and kind of speak up for the district that they're not engaging in this type of behavior, uh, you know, he wants to, what he said is that he wants to work on issues that matter, potentially learning loss, things of that nature. All right, well, we're going to have to pause for a quick break here, but we'll be back with a lot more from the candidates from Tuesday's event. You're listening to The Newsroom from WHQR Public Media. Please stay with us. Welcome back to The Newsroom. I'm WHQR News Director Ben Shockman here with reporter Rachel Keith, and we've got more candidates to get to. So, Rachel, who is up next? So our next candidate is Chris Sutton. He's a Republican candidate. If you watch the school board meetings, you'll see him at most of the calls to the audience period each month. And here's what he said about why he's running. The reason I got involved with this is because I knew a lot of the victims of the sexual assault, uh, Michael Kelly. He preyed on a lot of children. I got involved through that, tried to get some of the victims just a small semblance of justice, and I realized how bureaucratic it was, that they had created loopholes and policies. And Sutton goes on to accuse the district engaging in a cover-up culture during this time when all of those allegations were surfacing about the former New Hanover County teacher, Michael Kelly. Uh, You'll also see Chris, he likes to call out certain board members at these meetings when he gets a chance to do a call to the audience. So he's zeroed in on Nelson Bollier before and the chair, uh, Stephanie Craybill. Here he is responding to to Nelson at one point during the panel. Mr. Bollier, there's two things that if you break up during a debate, I'm going to eat you on. One, Constitution. You violated your oath multiple times. You made a mockery of your oath. Two, transparency, because you fought tooth and nail multiple times. And Chris continues on to say that some examples of Nelson not doing what he says he would do. And he says that Nelson didn't support a proposed transparency committee that some board members were wanting to start. And he also said that Nelson didn't support board members responding directly to community complaints. So there was a lot of frustration there on his part. And the the constitutional issue was, if you'll remember, Uh, Chris Sutton attended one of those call to the audiences, and instead of addressing the board, he turned and addressed the audience. Uh, It was Chair Stephanie Adams um, had a sheriff's deputy come over and and show him off, and uh, Chris felt that his constitutional rights had been violated there. So that's one of the incidents that he's talking about. All right, so moving on, we have Republican candidate Pat Bradford. She is the owner and publisher of... uh, Wrightsville Beach Magazine, and some of you may remember she uh, used to run Lumina News before she stepped down to run for office back in 2017, I believe. So here she is talking um, at the early part of the event. I want to stop the hemorrhaging. I want to turn this thing around. We're losing students. We're losing teachers. We're losing credibility all over the world for one of the most embarrassing counties in the nation. So as you can see, she's fairly critical of the district and its leadership. And she says that she's upset with the district 
losing students to charter schools, to private schools, to homeschooling, which means a loss of funding for public schools. She's also been pretty vocal at the calls to the audience about refocusing on the basics of education. And she's being she has been skeptical of diversity, equity, inclusion, belonging work. Um, but she also she received a question from the audience asking about the civil suit that is being brought by John Doe's one through 14 against the former superintendent, Dr. Tim Markley, the deputy superintendent, uh, Rick Holliday, and then also the Board of Education, the New Hanover County Schools Board of Education. I don't know how some of those children survive that. So my empathy for them is great. I did not watch the trial because I felt like it would might compromise something for me later on the board. Um, these kids need closure. Whatever we have to do to give the families closure, we need to do it. I, I have to say I'm not entirely sure what Pat is talking about in terms of the trial. There was no trial of Michael Earl Kelly. There was a hearing. Uh, where he accepted a plea deal and prosecutors did discuss what they would have brought uh, in front of a judge or jury had there been a trial. But I I don't know what the potential conflict there would have been. I do know that she is giving, you know, a pretty clear answer here saying, you know, pay the students. And she's, she's talking about reaching some kind of financial settlement with the students who have been uh, who have been traumatized. Um, And again, here we're talking about victims and alleged victims, but at least some of the people in this case were named in the criminal plea that Michael Earl Kelly, he admitted guilt in dozens of cases. So for some of these students, there is no question of fact. We know that they were sexually abused. We know that they have trauma. Although the school district has asked Superior Court Judge Phyllis Gorham to allow independent psychological evaluations of the plaintiffs to establish what that level of trauma is, Judge Gorham agreed to that request, so I I suppose until his evaluations are back, it is still technically an open question before the court. Yes, because what Pat was saying is that the insurance companies that represent the school board need to pay them for their for the psychological damage, essentially, and their loss of earning because they've really had to deal with the emotional trauma of the abuse. So we don't know if this case is going to trial in the fall, but it is interesting that Phyllis Gorham is allowing these uh, independent medical exams to go forward. Yeah, I mean, in in the minds of some people we've talked to, that is an indication that the court would probably not uh, greenlight that both because it's costly and because it could be, a, you know, it could be an ordeal for some of the plaintiffs if there was no plan to continue with the trial. In any case, moving on to Democratic candidate Judy Justice. Here's some of what she had to say early in the event. And I'm very worried about our schools. I've never seen the crisis that we are in right now. And I actually am knowledgeable enough to be able to find solutions. And I'm trying really hard, although some people might be resisting. Um, We need to save our our schools through our staff. Our staff is crumbling. We need leadership that supports that staff and works for ways to support them. So in my reporting of past board meetings, Judy has gotten into open conflict with members Nelson Bullier and Stephanie Adams, and even the superintendent, Dr. Charles Faust, and the current chair, Stephanie Craybill. 
And I've also covered the teacher attrition numbers in our area. And yes, we are losing more staff compared to previous years. And during the panel discussion, we also asked Judy about the two factions that seem to be emerging on the board, ones who want to conduct more oversight over the superintendent and ones who want the board to be more supportive of him. So we asked her to comment on this. I do not believe in blindly supporting somebody when their actions do not match what is needed under the circumstances. And that's what I've been seeing. That's why I was so upset last week. This is the last thing you need to be doing is attacking our staff when they're in meltdown after the horrible three, four years they've been through. They are the backbone of the school. They're the one, number one contacts with our kids. And he's our superintendent. And he should know that. And he should understand that. So you have Judy Justice again referencing the Star News article and Dr. Faust's comments in that article. And she also said, went on to say, I'm working with people that don't address problems. So she's probably referring to those same people on the board that she has pretty much open contention with. And then, Ben, you asked some really interesting questions of the panel. Yeah, so Dr. Faust had a evaluation done by the board last year, and there's another one underway right now, and those are protected by state law. We do not get to see that. It could be voluntarily released with Faust's permission, but that does not look likely to happen. But we have heard rumblings that there were concerns about Faust's performance. We don't have any more details like that that we could share, but just that, you know, there was some tension between the board and Faust. So I asked, uh, the entire panel, some of whom are sitting board members, uh, Judy, Nelson, and Pete are all current board members, you know, show of hands, so there's very little wiggle room, do you support Faust categorically? You're, you're totally good with everything he's doing. And not a single person out of 10 raised their hands. So I then asked, you know, there's a petition going around right now, you've seen some reporting on that, asking for Faust to be fired or his resignation. So I asked, does anyone here, raise your hand, if you think Faust should resign? And again, no hands went up. So I think what we can take from that is that everyone, including current board members, has some issues with the way Faust is doing his job. That may include his recent comments to Star News and his performance in general. Uh, No one thinks it's severe enough that he should be fired. Um, because you have to fire with cause because he has a contract, so it would have to rise to a certain level. But certainly there are concerns. Yes, and there is uh, something in state law, personnel law, that says that a board could release an evaluation if they feel like it's in the public's trust or to restore that trust. Exactly, yeah. And just to give you a quick example, this was the logic that Wilmington City Council used to authorize uh, Chief Donnie Williams to release information about those three Wilmington police officers who were caught on uh, tape uttering some pretty horrifying racist comments. Ordinarily, those would be protected by state law. So again, the idea is if not releasing this information could bring the public to a breaking point with their faith in a, an important institution, that's that's the caveat. So again, not sure we're there with Faust yet, but that is just something to be aware of. Mm-hmm. Um, but moving on. Democratic candidate Dorian Cromarty is the great nephew of civil rights hero, member of the uh, Greensboro Four, General Joseph McNeil. He's also the grandson of Rachel Freeman, who was the first black woman elected to the New Hanover County Board of Education. Uh, she has a school named after her here in Wilmington. He is a uh, retired military, and here's some of his comments from early in the event. I am the treasurer of Rachel Freeman PTA, and I've been doing that for years, and I enjoy it. It's something I love to do, listening to the parents, to the students, to the teachers. 
You have to be in those schools. You have to be involved with your community. I can't represent the community without knowing the community. So you have Dorian here making his case that he is out in the community. He cares about schools, that he is actively involved. And the panel asked him about if he was elected, what would he do if redistricting came up again? And it starts with a proper redistricting plan, but we cannot move these kids around year to year like pawns. We have to get it right, and we have to get it close. If we don't get it right, we have to go back and make a plan that's even closer to getting right. So from these comments that he made during this question and answer session, it wasn't entirely clear if he would support a busing plan or balancing the free and reduced lunch numbers among the schools in our district. But he was clear that our schools coincide with neighborhoods, which again, are mainly segregated by race and class. But Ben, you said that he also said he didn't want to bus anyone that would be 30 minutes away from their house. Yeah, and this is because redistricting is such a complicated process, and it involves getting up an hour early for students to spend 30 minutes or 45 minutes on a bus on the way to school and then on the way home is not an ideal solution, you know, and this is part of the conversation we've been having for a long time. Part of the issue is that not every school in New Hanover County is of equal quality, has the same level of teaching staff, has the same quality of facilities. I mean, these are demonstrable facts. So there are people like Superintendent Charles Faust who argue it should be less about considering the racial makeup of an individual school and more about making sure that, you know, teachers are doing what they can to get students to the same level. So this is a it's a tough debate. And I think that's, you know, Dorian's prevaricating a little bit, um, but it is really complicated. We did only give candidates two minutes. So I think we can forgive them for not solving redistricting in two minutes. That's right. Yeah. All right. So moving on, Democratic candidate Veronica McLaren Brown. She's a former district educator and she's one of the co-leaders of the group Love Our Children. Rachel, you covered this movement. Yeah. And they successfully advocated to end the suspensions of kids under eight, except for weapons, violent assaults and drugs and alcohol. And this comes from her closing statement. And I will work. You saw me work 13 months nonstop two days off to get a policy passed to make sure we were helping our children. And I would do it for every policy. And I did see her and the co-leader, Peter Rawwich. They were at pretty much every single call to the audience. They, they had a pretty good group that would come and speak. And they really did advocate for this policy. They worked with the board members. This was really important to them. So... Yeah, it was a successful advocacy that Love Our Children had. Um, She also said during the panel that the vote on April 5th was 7 to 3, but it was unanimous. It was 7-0. Just a quick clarification. And I also did ask her during the panel how the district can show educators that they value them. They know what they want to stay in this district. They're the experts on what they want. We know they need high wages. We know they want to be involved in decision making. We know they want to be shown respect. And we know that they want us to understand that they are the most important element in helping our children learn. So we have her here really saying that we need to listen to teachers. The district has 
created a teacher advocacy committee and a TA committee that Dr. Charles Faust meets with monthly is what the district said to hear concerns. Chair Stephanie Craybill also said that they have created a task force that board member Hugh McManus and Stephanie Walker are heading up to kind of work through some of the, the issues that were presented through the December climate survey. So the district seems like they're trying to hear the concerns of teachers, and it'll be interesting to see if those concerns will turn into action. And the budget is very complicated. Uh, so the school district really relies on the county commissioners to approve their funding. Uh, they, The district does get support and a lot of funding from the state and federal sources. So you know, it's just one piece, but it is a large piece. And a lot of the current board members are debating what should we ask ask for from the commissioners and that budget, those budget negotiations are going to come up soon. It should come up on May 3rd when the board votes for the official budget that they're going to present to the commissioners. Yeah, that's one moment I wanted to touch on in the event and something you reported on recently. And that was you know, during a recent school board meeting, there was a conversation about bringing an ask to the county to raise the pay for classified staff. So this is, you know, custodians, um, support staff, not teachers proper, but the, you know, part of the team that makes schools work. And uh, board member Nelson Bullier said, OK, I'm all for making an ask, but we're going to blindside our partners, meaning the county commissioners. He didn't want to just surprise them with asking for more money. And there's been some tension between the county commission and the school board, we recently heard uh, county commissioner chair Julia Olson Bozeman talk about maybe reviewing the budget and looking at uh, actually removing some money from that in possible places. They talked about that at a recent county commissioner's agenda review meeting. So like you said, it's complicated, but it's also worth noting the county commissioners are also up for election. And I had a chance to recently speak, actually hosted uh, the GOP county commissioner convention. There was four of them, and they were getting questions from the audience. And uh, even though conservatives are known for tight control over the finances, most of them said they supported raise, especially for the more working class support personnel. So even though this is complicated on the school board side, it's also a lot of moving pieces on the county commissioner side because we don't actually know who's going to be a county commissioner next year. That's right. And Pete Wildeboer is a Republican candidate, and he is all for the ask. He wants to get teachers' assistants and custodians up to $16 an hour with a 2% step increase. And they're asking right now, the proposal is for spread over two years, that's $17.6 million. But a lot of teachers I've talked to is they want it all in one year. So it's interesting to see what they'll approve. But again, the county commission is basically just going to approve per pupil spending. And that looks right now to be $3,434 per kid. Uh, so it's up to the the school district to kind of figure out what their priorities are. Would they have to cut other things that they wanted to do to give these pay raises? We'll have to see. Yeah. All right. So moving on, we have candidate Jenna Bosch, Democratic candidate Jenna Bosch, um, says she's got a child in the district. Uh, she's on a PTA and she's worked with the calendar committee. And here she is uh, from her intro at the event. So what I would like is for us to make sure that these students, these teachers, these staff, everybody from the ground up has help. 
mental health workers and social workers in every school to train the teachers, to teach the students, to help them know where to go, what to do. And there's been reporting that a lot of school districts across the state do not have the recommended counselors or mental health workers for the number of students that they have in each school. So Jenna Bosch is advocating for this additional support. Her whole platform is mental health support of staff and students. I mean, this is her number one thing that she's running on. And she also talked about her experience volunteering in the district and her views on how staff can support students. But as I've been in the school, I've seen changes in students. I'm from the South. If any of you from the South, you know, if a child is in your purview, that child is your child and you're going to take care of it. You're going to discipline it. You're going to make sure it needs what it wants. And if it falls, you're going to pick it up. So again, many of Jenna's points came back to dealing with students' adverse childhood events and mental health in general. Okay, we've got to take a break, but when we come back, Rachel Keith and I will unpack some of the big takeaways from this week's town hall event. You're listening to The Newsroom. Stay with us. Welcome back to The Newsroom. I'm WHQR News Director Ben Schachman, here with reporter Rachel Keith, and we're talking about this week's town hall event for the primary candidates for the New Hanover County Board of Education. Okay, Rachel, so at the end of the night, you know, 90 minutes, an hour and a half of conversation, a lot of tough questions, a lot of interesting answers. Let's pull together some takeaways here on a couple of the things we heard about the most. The first is DEI or CRT or any of these sort of diversity, equity, inclusivity issues. So on the whole, it looks like the Democratic candidates are supportive of this work. And those who are running in the Republican Party are very skeptical of this work. So you have a spectrum here. So if you're a voter and you value equity, diversity, inclusion work, look at the candidates who support that versus ones who clearly don't. Yeah, I will say an interesting part of that spectrum was Chris Sutton was talking about financial waste, which we'll get to in a minute. But he noted the school's hiring of Sophic Solutions as a consultant and was pretty disparaging of the end results, basically saying there was a students in an auditorium clapping, saying equity is equality, and that that cost thousands of dollars, and that they could have put that money into actual equity work if that's what the district wanted. So he wasn't framing it so much as anti-DEI as just, you know, financial waste. And I saw Dorian Cromartie sort of nod in agreement. So at least they agree that we shouldn't be wasting money, because I've definitely known people who are on the left side of the spectrum, who are Democrats, who are liberals, who are in favor of DEI work, but had questions about Sophic Solutions and Dr. Charles House's approach to this. Yes. And I think most people, you have to tell them what it's going, what's the end result? What is the end product? And if it's an intangible, just to be clear about that. And the district has said what they're doing, just potentially people need to invest the time as well to see what they're doing. But there's that contention and disconnect from time to time. Yeah. So moving on to, as mentioned, the the fiscal side of things. So this is not as clear cut as you might think. You know, we, in general, the old truism is that, you know, Republicans are fiscal conservatives, Democrats are tax and spend. But that's not the way it plays out in a lot of these board meetings and a lot of these decisions. Take, for example, um, criticisms about too much money going to central office. 
This is something we first heard from Judy Justice years ago, I believe back in 2018. And now we're hearing it from uh, Democrat Judy Justice, but also conservative Pete Wildeboer and Chris Sutton. Yes, and this has come up in regular board meetings, too. And Dr. Charles Faust says, hey, we have a slim central office. I don't know what else I can cut. So there is that miscommunication about what support needs to go to the school system versus what kind of supports are available at central office. But yes, we heard across the aisle that they don't want money going to central office. They want it going to schools and teachers and TAs. This is a criticism we hear of any government body. The executive officers, whether that's a, um, a city manager, a county manager, or a superintendent, they get paid a lot. And so the argument for that is you pay for the best, you want the best person running it, But I know both conservatives and liberals who have looked at the average teacher salary or, you know, a teacher making 40 grand a year and really struggling. And then look at Charles Faust, who's making over $200,000 a year, who has been known to arrive in bespoke clothing in his Porsche at events. And it can be a little hmm, the optics can be not great. Yeah, and we've seen that on message boards and even the current uh, petition that's out there to ask him to resign also have those has those types of comments on it. And the last thing I'll say about the budget is that a lot of the candidates candidates brought up if kids are leaving the public schools, that means less money. So that's something that they're all trying to look at. Can we bring kids back into the public school system so we don't lose that per pupil funding? So one thing we did hear some pretty broad agreement about is seclusion rooms. Yeah, most of the candidates do not want them in our school. And it's a very contentious issue. And we heard Assistant Superintendent Julie Varnum said, hey, it's at the will of the board to decide if these are going to be offered in the future. But I think the related issue here, and sometimes the elephant in the room, is that the reason that seclusion rooms have been used more is that, to put it bluntly in the words of one of the candidates, students are out of control. Yes. And we even had Nelson Bollier said, my wife is an EC teacher in the district and also has been hurt by a student. Julie Varnum said that these are for emergency use only if some student is being violent or aggressive to themselves or other people. It's not supposed to be a behavioral tool, is what she said. Yeah. I mean, you can't keep secluding a child and expect the behavior to, to improve after a certain point. It just becomes this really nasty feedback loop. But it was less clear what to do about the rampant increase in student misbehavior. Yeah, and you heard from Jenna Bosch, who said, we just need more mental health support across the board. You hear teachers, we need additional TAs to help pull out a student. We need counselors to help support students. We just need more support because they have a room full of 30 students. And that would be great if they had a support system that could pull a student out and say, hey, what's going on? But do they have that available to them? And I think that was Jenna's point is just we need more people in the building to help students who are struggling with ACEs, adverse childhood experiences in school. If you look at the national to something we hear after school shootings, after incidents of suicide or self-harm, after really any of the many psychological crises that are unfolding in our schools right now. And people will always say it's about mental health, but that means paying trained mental health professionals. It is not cheap. You cannot go on Fiverr and get a quick, oh, we'll just get someone in here who knows mental health. No, we're talking about people who have degrees, who need to be compensated. We want quality people, and that's going to cost money. So that's going to be a fight down the road. That's right. 
All right. The issue of transparency came up a couple times. And this is something you and I have seen every election cycle as in our career as journalists. Yes, everyone runs on transparency and accountability, but it's one thing when they get in office, how they manifest that change. What will they share with the public? What will they say about tough issues that us in the media are asking about? So when they get in that seat, it gets it becomes a different story. One of the questions for Dorian Cromarty was, how would you let the public know when something was going on in the school if someone, if a say a teacher had been accused of something or there was an internal report of, of misconduct? And the truth is state law would probably prevent him for that and he could be legally liable. It's very easy to say I would have I'd be a radical transparency advocate, you know, elect me and I'll tell you everything. But we have heard from multiple candidates for city council, for the county commission and for the school board that once you get elected, one of the first things that happens is they bring you into a closed session with the attorney. And they basically break down for you all of the pending litigation. This happened to all of the candidates who were elected who ran on transparency mm-hmm. in 2018. And the attorney effectively told them, this is how bad it is. These are the legal liabilities that you are facing as the board because you will be the named defendants in civil litigation. That's right. And that, not to put too fine a point on it, scares people silent. Yes, because it's a legal issue at that point. And Chris Sutton really wants to tell the community what the loopholes were in getting Michael Kelly exposed. And it would be interesting to see if he got elected, what he would share with the public, or he would say, wow, I can't share that because of personnel issues or because we're still in ongoing litigation. There's a lot more reporting to be done on this issue. But one thing I can say is that attorneys are giving you legal advice. Yes. But a lot of the times it is subjective. It is their point of view. It is what I think you should do. It is in the board's best interest that you not say this. Now, there are some things. Carbon stone, you can't talk about without breaking the law. You can't talk about a student's records. You can't talk about an employee's records with some with a very few caveats. But there is a lot of gray area between what an attorney would advise you against doing and what you legally cannot do. So that is a space where candidates, if elected, could push some boundaries. And we certainly have some candidates who have said they will. But as you and I were saying in the newsroom before, everyone runs on transparency. We always see candidates have some kind of change. Sometimes they they try to keep the spirit, but but they're all pulled back a little bit by the realities of that office. So the the proof of the pudding is in the eating. We have to see what these people actually do once they're elected. Yes, and when people call in the media like you or I or our other news stations in the area, hey, I need you to comment on this. Hey, can I have this document? Then we'll see the level of transparency that we're dealing with. Absolutely. Okay, so let's end on this. There was a lot of talk about dysfunction this week, but there was also a lot of talk about common ground and bipartisan work. So let's let's break this down a little bit before we leave. Yeah, and I'm glad we had the panel with both Democrats and Republicans. We know in the primary, you're going to be voting for one party or the other to move forward in November. But I could see having all 10 of them trying to find common ground with one another. I didn't hear one candidate say, I'm not working with a Democrat. I'm not working with a Republican. They said, I'm here for the kids and we have to build consensus to help them. I did hear that from all of the candidates. Yeah. And Pete Wildeboer, a Republican, said, you know, there's two Republicans on the board and five Democrats. Of course, I work with Democrats. And someone booed him from the audience and he said, well, there you go. But he just kept moving ahead. And I think that's that was kind of the spirit. The dysfunction side of this conversation in your coverage of the school board over the last couple of months, we have seen some detente. 
things have calmed down a little bit, but we've said that before. Again, the the level of vitriol in general, the, the level of passion, so the people who've been showing up at the meetings have not helped the board function more smoothly. All of the board members have said they are committed to a kinder, gentler, friendlier board that works a bit more smoothly. Um, Chair Stephanie Crabill's marching orders, as you put it, were, hey, disagree, but disagree amicably. But again, uh, you got to prove it. And I think that means don't attack the person. You need to comment on the behavior or the policy. And I think that's the big difference that the public is looking for. And again, it looked like it came from all Democrats and Republicans. They want to work together. And the dysfunction comes from the fighting. And they don't want to see that. A lot of people do not want to see that. They want to see collaboration. And what can I do to help? Exactly. So let's say for the time being to leave off that we are optimistic, but cautiously optimistic. Yes. All right, Rachel Keith, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you, Ben. All right. Well, that's about all the time we have for this edition of The Newsroom. Our thanks to Michael Pratz, Brad Myers, and the team from WECT, and Alexandria Sands and Shea Carver from Port City Daily, and of course, the candidates. Without all these people, this event would not have been possible. Thanks also to Cape Fear Community College for allowing us to use their excellent auditorium at Union Station. And, of course, our own WHQR technical team, Ken Campbell and Jonathan Furnell. A reminder, we'll be holding another town hall along with WECT and Port City Daily on Tuesday, May 3rd for the primary candidates in the race for New Hanover County Board of Commissioners. The event will be live streamed, but we hope to see you there in person if you can make it. And a note. One-Stop Voting is now open, and we'll have details on the show page about how to vote in the primaries, and of course, primary election day is Tuesday, May 17th. If you missed any part of this program, you can find it at whqr.org, and you can also find it as a podcast, pretty much everywhere you can find podcasts. If you have thoughts or comments about today's program or ideas for a future show, email us at newsroom at whqr.org. I'm Ben Schockman. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll join us for the next edition of The Newsroom.